actually older than I am. So I found on the Internet a prayer for our generation or for your generation. It goes like this. Give me the senility to forget all the people I didn't really like and the good fortune to run into the ones that I do and the eyesight to tell the difference. That was from a website with some Jewish jokes. Would you like another one? Uh, Mr. Rosenberg is flying from, oh, there you go. Mr. Rosenberg is flying from uh, New York to uh, Tel Aviv on El Al, the Israeli national airlines. He's sitting in the front. Stewardess comes and says, Mr. Rosenberg, would you like dinner? He says, oh, what are my choices? He says, yes and no. <laughs> and then just one more. Mr. Rosenberg's driving down the highway, and uh, the uh, cop pulls him over. Mr. Rosenberg, Mr. Rosenberg, your wife fell out of the car five miles ago. He goes, oh, thank goodness, I thought I was going deaf. Um, this summer, Bill preached about reference points, and I wanted to pick up on one of those about Jesus that jumped out at me, and I wanted to explore it more fully and see what I could get out of it to help myself and others. It's actually pretty serious, now that we've broken the ice a little bit. It was from Hebrews 12.3, so if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews 12, and you can leave them open, we'll refer to this. It's uh, verses 1 to 4 from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So let's break this down and see what we have here and how much we can get out of it to help us. Verse 1, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. So who are the witnesses? Well, Paul just got done telling us about them in the previous chapter in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, yeah? Who are they? Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Do you know these guys? Yeah, Joseph, Moses' parents, Moses himself, then all the Israelites who made it through the Red Sea, then all the ones who marched around Jericho, then the prostitute Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, and many more unnamed who, we are told, were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains 
and in caves and holes in the ground. I tell you what, you may want to get a Nobel Prize or a Grammy or an Olympic gold medal or some other, uh, some other kind of super prestigious award. And those are all pretty cool things. But I'd much, much rather get even an honorable mention in God's Hall of Faith, wouldn't you? Yeah, that's really something to aspire to. I mean, God's the great leveler. Some of these presidents and prime ministers, millionaires and stars, they're going to die and have less than nothing for eternity. But for a Christian, even for the lowliest among us, if we're faithful till the end, we have so much to gain. A lot of what we're talking about this morning can be boiled down to one word, perspective. Perspective. We have two meanings for that word perspective. One is like your point of view or your point of reference. And the other meaning of perspective is like proportionality. I'll explain what I mean. Let's take point of view. Suppose this is your point of view on the abortion issue. You say, I don't like those pro-lifers. They're hostile to women, and they want to restrict their right to get an abortion. Okay, when you look at the abortion issue, do you look at it as a Christian or as a regular person? Right? Just as a regular person. Do you look at it as a man, or do you look at it as a woman? Do you look at it as a woman or a girl who wants to get an abortion? Or do you look at it as a baby who's about to get torn to shreds if your mother goes through with the procedure? You see, your, your perspective, your point of view, makes all the difference in the world. And here's what the Bible says about our point of view in 1 Corinthians 4.18. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Then we have perspective as proportionality. How important is the factor you're looking at now in comparison with all the other factors? How big is it in relation to everything else? For example, if you say to me, I need to file for divorce, and I ask why, well, you say, well, my husband doesn't pick up after himself, he doesn't do his share of the work at home, and I'm tired of doing all the things he should be doing. Okay, that's one thing. But if you say to me, my husband took up with another woman and left town and left me to pay the rent and take care of the kids and I don't have a job, well, that's quite a different story. Yeah, the first lady has marriage trouble, but compared to the second, not so much. So if we're talking about perspective as proportionality, we mean how big is this thing you're up against in relation, in proportion to everything else? 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And Paul listed later on in that same letter, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, what his momentary light afflictions were. Do you remember those? I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? So these are some of the light and momentary troubles Paul had that he said in Romans 8 are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then we get the good part. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. What are our troubles that we have been thinking are not so light and not so momentary? Is it possible that by reflecting on what the Apostle Paul went through, or better yet, of course, what the Lord went through, and we'll get to more of that in a minute, Maybe so reflecting, we can start to think of our own afflictions as being relatively light, and we can start to think of our troubles as being relatively brief. With this new perspective, maybe we'll have more patience. Maybe we'll be able to show a little more grace toward our husband and, or wife, our kids or our parents, or that difficult coworker or classmate at school. Really, there's no end to the good that could come from it, if you think of it. And before we completely convince ourselves that some situation is intolerable or impossible, maybe a sense of proportion could help us take it in stride. Again, that was Romans 8.18 that says that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compa compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So we can strengthen our walk in Christ if we have big doses of both of these kinds of perspective point of view, and proportionality. But which one of these two, point of view and proportionality, is more important? It seems to me, in the long run, the key will be point of view. Look what it says earlier in the Hall of Faith chapter, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they were looking at their difficulties from a heavenly point of view and not from a purely earthly one. Okay, back to chapter 12. It says that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. So think of the maybe center like this, like a ring, like a halo around and over the court. Right? You been there, Bill? <laughs> so the cloud of witnesses would be like all the saints who've gone on before us, especially, of course, any loved ones of ours and all the most famous and most faithful ones we can think of 
all of the witnesses around us like a halo or like clouds floating there. And they're looking down at us and seeing what we're doing and cheering us on when we do right and uh, then probably groaning or grimacing when we don't do so well. Right? So I don't know how my theology is on that. I don't know if it's true that the ones who've passed before us are watching or not, but it's a helpful motivator. Like even unbelievers say that so-and-so is smiling down on us or that they're spinning in their graves, you know, whatever that means. So we have this great cloud of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Do you know how Hebrew poetry works? But you say, Dory, this is the New Testament. It was written in Greek. Yeah, but it's the book of Hebrews. So I got you there. Okay. We have the things that hinder and the sin. We get hindered or entangled. So this is parallel, parallelism in poetry. We're not supposed to figure out what the difference is between getting hindered and getting entangled. They represent the same thing. Our sins and temptations and mistakes and doubt and naivety and foolishness will hinder us, entangle us, and end up taking us out of the game short term or for good. So then back up a step again. Since we have this great cloud of witnesses watching us, or at least going before us, let's put all that sin and temptation aside and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And what's the race marked out for us? Well, I'd say at the very least it means to confess that Jesus is Lord as long as you have breath on earth. At the very least, it means to resist temptation and abstain from known sin. It seems to me that's the bare minimum we should expect of ourselves and hope for for others. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Then verse 3, which was Bill's reference point and is, I think, the key verse in this part of the chapter. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus and to consider him who endured such opposition or hostility from sinners. What did Jesus endure that we are to keep in mind when we think of him? I want us to look at what the scriptures tell us about what Jesus endured. Some of you will have heard these references hundreds of times. I'll just suggest that to get something new out of it this time, try listening with this particular angle in mind. What did Jesus endure personally? And how does it serve as an example for me and give me perspective for what I might have to endure in the future. You remember when Jesus at the Last Supper served the communion, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. So we knew that he knew in advance that his death was imminent. Now some of us may, God forbid it, but you or I may die next week or next year. But usually we don't know in advance that we're going to die prematurely, and thankfully so. 
sometimes we do know, and for many people it's just impossible to deal with. In any case, Jesus knew that his time had come, and he found a way to come to terms with it. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He told his disciples to wait for him while he prayed. Then he took three, who were maybe his most trusted ones, Peter, James, and John. He took them closer, and he put them on special prayer watch. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says that he began to be sorrowful and severely troubled. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And I don't think Jesus was exaggerating when he described how he was feeling. And as he prayed for the cup to be taken away from him, we read in Luke, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And we've still got a long way to go, yeah? Next, Jesus is betrayed by Judas. He knew it was coming, but still we expect he's, he felt the sting of betrayal at least as much as we would have. Then we read that all the disciples left him and fled. Like we used to say, they were looking out for number one, right? Which in this case is not the Lord who's number one, but it's me who's number one. I'm strictly looking out for myself. So the disciples left him and fled. It's another betrayal for Jesus to experience. Next, they took Jesus to the high priest, and it says there were many false witnesses against the Lord. So you can turn the aggravation sorrow meter up another notch. When they asked Jesus if he was the Son of God, he said, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of the sky. Then what they do? It says that, that they spit on his face, they beat him with their fists, and slapped him. Was Jesus tempted to use some sort of natural or supernatural power to get back at them or even lash out at them in a rage? I don't know. I think we're getting beyond the place where we can imagine what he felt. But we get a bit of it by reading or hearing the story and considering it. After this, Peter denied the Lord three times, we're told, an especially bitter betrayal since Peter was apparently one of his favorites and since Peter had specifically promised him, what? Even if the others fell away, he would stay true. And even if he had to die, he would stay true to Jesus. So for the moment at least, Peter's gone. When the crowd that later gathered was offered a pick of whom they would give amnesty, Jesus or the thief Barabbas, they picked Barabbas. Then what shall I do to Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Crucify him. After all this, and there's been quite a bit so far, yeah, Jesus was flogged. Some of you have seen the movie The Passion, which portrays this as quite an extreme flogging, which it may well have been. But if we follow the whole Bible story, we're probably going to conclude that, as you may have heard others say, the mental or emotional or spiritual sufferings of Christ were worse than the physical ones. 
those sufferings included an, another round of mocking. Do you, remember, do you remember how they dressed him? Matthew says that they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They braided a crown of thorns and put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Then they gave him sour wine to drink mixed with gall. When he had tasted it, he would not drink it. I looked up some commentary on this verse, and there seems to be a consensus that this was some kind of drink to kill pain or give relief. But I wonder instead if it was some kind of incredibly nasty mixture they whipped up just to taunt Jesus and upset him more. And then for more dishonor and humiliation, two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right hand and one on the left. And then they mocked him one more time, sort of an ultimate mocking. When he was on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and elders said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. If he's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross now, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. We all know that crucifixion is an incredibly grueling way to die. When we're faced with such a prospect, every instinct in us would resist and try to find another way to live or another way to die other than going to the cross. We're told in Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. You know, if somebody offers us something we don't want, something we're not interested in, you can't say they've tempted us. Right after we've eaten and we're full, it's pretty hard to tempt us with food. So if Jesus was tempted, it had to be that he was offered things that, at least at some level, he wanted to take. He must have wanted to worm his way out of going to the cross the same way we would have if it had been us. But back in our text from Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's a bit of a mystery Greek word, scorned. Other versions say he despised the shame of the cross or that he ignored it. Whatever the precise meaning of that word may be, we can get this particular meaning of the passage. Jesus looked straight at death on the cross. He saw the physical pain. He saw the emotional humiliation and shame. He must have seen some kind of picture of what separation from the Father would be like. He saw all that. He felt the natural pull not to do it. He felt the temptation to find a way to avoid it. And he said, I'm going to do it anyway. And when Hebrews says to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, we don't just look at how horribly Jesus was treated, but we look at how he reacted. 
their catalog the seven last words, the seven last sayings of Jesus from the cross. In Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's our example. That's where our heart will be when we prevail. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Did the Romans who carried out the execution not realize that they were killing Jesus? Did they not realize that he was innocent? When Jesus says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, talk about giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. But then again, most of them probably didn't dream that today's execution would be the most important one in history and that Jesus wasn't paying for his own actions, but for the sins of the whole world. Well, that's our ultimate example. We could just quit here. We could close our Bibles and say, I'll just do what Jesus did in the Passion. That's great, but most of our temptations and most of our struggles are just not on that plane. Right? Even when we have our most important decisions to make, they aren't of the sort that Jesus faced in having to take on the sins of the whole world. And we're going to have mostly more mundane, everyday decisions and trials and temptations. They may seem small compared to what we just read that the Lord Jesus went through, but our own track record of success isn't always all that great, and even our relatively small everyday trials and temptations can still be big enough to trip us up or incapacitate us. So we fix our eyes on Jesus, we think about who he is, we remember what he did for us, we consider and meditate on it, and then when that temptation comes along, we ask ourselves if, all things considered, is that temptation really something we want to give in to right now. We can't really make a one-time, one-off decision that will be perfect for the rest of our lives and we'll never sin again. Our temptations come one at a time. We need to resist them one at a time. Or to use a metaphor from a little bit outside of the church, we've been dealt a winning hand in Christ. Do we really want to throw our cards in at that strategic moment? Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't throw away your winning hand. Get back again to our text. At the end of verse 2, we read that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is that figurative language or literal? Do you think about the word of God that way? I mean, does God have a literal throne, golden and all spectacularly ornate and all that, on which he is seated like this? Uh, to me, it looks like figurative language. I don't think I'm taking away from God's splendor or, and glory or downplaying God's word to say that he doesn't have a literal throne. I imagine where he is and what he looks like is just leagues beyond what we can imagine or think. But if you think there is a literal throne, that's great, more power to you, may it be. And you know it'd be the most glorious throne there could be. In any case, 
That's where Jesus is. That's what awaited him after everything he went through on earth. So again, we have perspective. Our text says he did all this for the joy set before him. He says to the thief on the cross who repents, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we hear this, we latch on to that half where the thief goes to paradise. But what about where Jesus himself is going? Today you will be with me in paradise. So just as Jesus recoiled against death on a cross and certainly was at least tempted to back out of it, so we can see that for the joy set before him, having that perspective, knowing that he would land in paradise, it gave him what he needed to see the sacrifice through to the end. We know that Jesus submitted himself willingly to all of this suffering, the greatest saga ever, and to more. He didn't have to. He could have found a way out of it. He said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. He said in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. He said he would be mocked, scourged, and crucified. He knew the storyline in advance. Jesus endured such hostility from sinners, it says, so we shouldn't grow weary and lose heart. Don't grow weary and lose heart. What's that other verse in Galatians 6, 6, 9? Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Or you know the older versions? We will reap if we do not faint. Probably most of us start to think, I will faint if I do not reap. I want to tell you a story from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Do you know this book? Fox's Book of Martyrs. William Lithgow was born in Scotland around the year 1853. He was known for his travels in continental Europe, and in 1620, he visited Malaga in the south of Spain. In those days, the Inquisition was raging, and if your religious confession was not acceptable to the Catholic Church, you could rather easily find yourself tied to a stake and burned to death. Lithgow had had at least one close call with the Inquisition before he got to Malaga, but there he ran into some trouble, to put it mildly. He was initially nabbed by the Spanish authorities, not on suspicion of being a heretic, but of being a spy. So Lithgow was subjected to a variety of tortures, which didn't produce a confession for his captors, but the tortures, including the rack, if you know what that is, they did result in quite a lot of pain and broken bones for Lithgow. And only after that, he was turned over to the Inquisition. You see, they found some books in his possession, which, when translated from English into Spanish, showed his captors that he was a big-time heretic. When he was asked if he was a Catholic and if he recognized the authority of the Pope, he replied that the recent Treaty of London signed by Spain 
protected the right of the British to remain Protestants. Of course, his captors were unsatisfied with this, and they gave him a period of eight days in which to reconsider. Lithgow hung tough and continued to confess himself a Christian who supported the Reformation. That gained him the title of absurd heretic who was headed for damnation. And then, this is my favorite part, quote, the prisoner then told his inquisitor that it was not consistent with the nature and essence of religion and charity to convince by opprobrious speeches, racks, and torments, but by arguments deduced from the scriptures, and that all other methods would, with him, be totally ineffectual. Let's hear that one more time. The prisoner then told his inquisitor that it was not consistent with the nature and essence of religion and charity to convince by opprobrious speeches, racks, and torments, but by arguments deduced from the scriptures, and that all other methods would with him be totally ineffectual. Did, did you grasp that? You can take away every earthly possession of mine. You can beat me or threaten to kill me. You can use any sort of blackmail you want. It's like water off a duck's back. You're barking up the wrong tree, or it has no sway over me. I'm committed to Christ, so changing my confession of faith for any sort of reward on earth, or in order to avoid any sort of pain on earth, is just completely out of the question. But if, however, if you want to show in the scriptures that I've not quite got it right, well, I'll at least listen to what you have to say. So how do you think the Inquisitor responded to Lithgow's challenge? Not so nicely. They switched to a different tactic. They tried using tears and pleading with Lithgow to accept their Catholic doctrine. But he still hung tough, saying, I fear neither death nor fire, being prepared for both. So he was sentenced to more torture, after which, if he survived, he would be sent to the nearby city of Granada and burned at the stake. Do you know what's going to happen? Mm. He did survive another round of exquisite tortures and was held for an extended period of time as Easter was coming and prisoners weren't to be executed until after the holiday. Lithgow later credited his survival during this period to the mercy of a Turkish slave who numerous times sneaked some dried fruits to him, which he could only eat with his tongue as his arms were incapacitated due to the tortures. And here are the words of, of Fox, the writer. It is very extraordinary. <clears throat> it's very extraordinary and worthy of note that this poor slave bred up from his infancy according to the maxims of his prophet and parents in the greatest detestation of Christians should be so affected at the miserable situa situation of Mr. Lithgow that he fell ill. In other words, the Turkish slave fell ill and continued so for upwards of 40 days. During this period, Mr. Lithgow was attended by a Negro woman, a slave, 
who found means to furnish him with refreshments still more amply than the Turk, being conversant in the house and family. She brought him every day some victuals and with it some wine in a bottle. Did you get that? The Turkish slave was brought up from infancy according to the maxims of his prophet and parents in the greatest detestation of Christians and still saved the life of Lithgow. What's Fox talking about there? Islam, yeah? So praise God, if we're trusting in the Lord, he might just deliver us with the help of a merciful Muslim or an atheist or a Hindu or a Catholic, right? Eventually, the English expat community found out about Lithgow's situation just in time and got him released the day before Easter. He had to be carried since he'd been crippled to a ship and sailed home from there to England and Scotland. He was able to recover in part from what he'd gone through physically and was able to leave a written record of his travels. But he was never able to get his books and belongings back, which the authorities had seized in Spain. But then again, can you imagine what a greater reward he received when he finally got to the throne of God on the other side? When he heard those beautiful words of welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Like it says earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. There's another verse about persevering from 1 Corinthians 15, yeah? 15, 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. <coughs> Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'll tell you why I like this verse from 1 Corinthians. Do you think of yourself as a Christian worker? You're not, you're not a passive or inactive Christian, but you are or you're planning to be a Christian worker. You're going to do Christian work. You're going to expand the kingdom of God. Right? This verse is for you. See, this verse doesn't say just to hang on, try and hang on, make sure you don't fall into sin, and you'll be glad in the end that you didn't throw in the towel. It says instead, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. The other translations have abound in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? Back to Hebrews 12, verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Well, you haven't, unless you have. Like, say you're witnessing to somebody, and they got angry and punched you out, and you got a bloody nose, right? So then you have resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But more likely, this phrase, shedding your blood, is a euphemism, and it means you haven't given your life for the Lord, like so many of the folks in the Hall of Faith have. I mean, that's a pretty safe thing to say. No one reading the book of Hebrews has, at the time of reading, already given his life for the Lord. 
but thousands or millions of people have read this verse. And as they're reading, yeah, they haven't shed their blood or they haven't given their life uh, for the Lord. Uh, but later they do shed their blood or they do give their life for the Lord. How about here in America? How about here in Tulsa? Have any of us shed our blood for the Lord? Have you shed your blood for the Lord? He shed his blood for you. What's the worst thing someone can do to you? Right? Are they, are they going to mock you for your faith? Are they going to fire you from your job unjustly? Will they mistreat you physically or even kill you? Maybe they will kill you. Right? You know there are some bad trends in society, and we don't know what the world will look like in 20 or 30 years from now if a new per persecution might kick in. But what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Matthew 10, 28. But then what awaits you? Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, it says in Revelations 2.10. It turns out that what, that what was the worst thing that could happen to you is really the best. So Hebrews 11 the hall of faith, and the first part of chapter 12, the application, is about perspective. How can we get the Lord's perspective on our lives, on our temptation, and our inclination to sin, and on the life, and the death, and the resurrection, amen, of the Lord Jesus? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's consider him who endured so much. Let's get the encouragement we need to make it to our destination. I'll finish with Colossians 1, 15 to 19. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who uh, endured all these things that we talked about and so much more for us and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We thank you that in this there's the encouragement and the help uh, for us that we need. Lord, we pray that we would take heed to your word and not live like uh, we would have if we didn't know these things, Lord, but knowing these things, we'd live according to them. We would draw from you the strength we need to endure, and we could live lives that would glorify you 
uh, right up to the very end until we hear those words, well done, <clears throat> good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dory. Appreciate that, brother. There's nothing like the perspective that the Word of God brings, right? Amen. Let's stand together. Remind you of our Sunday night activities. hope many of you can be here for our Sunday night seminar. Also, uh, ladies, don't forget to sign up this morning for the women's retreat a couple weeks away, as well as for the 12-hour prayer advance. It'll be coming this Saturday. I encourage you to pray about and sign up for that as well. Dear Heavenly Father,